you have not already turned, please turn to Romans chapter 1, and I'd invite you to stand as I read for you our text. Our text is actually found in verses 26 and 27. Uh, I know it begins in verse 24 up there, but I'm calling an audible. I'm going to begin in verse 21 and uh, just follow along as I read for you the word of God. As I like to say on occasion, this is the only time in which I will be infallible and inerrant as I read straight from the word of God. You'll have to test everything else that I say after this. Romans chapter 1, beginning in verse 21. For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. But they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and exchanged the glory of the incorruptible God for an image in the form of corruptible man, and of birds, and four-footed animals, and crawling creatures. Therefore, God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity, so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. For their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. And in the same way also, the men abandoned the natural function of the woman and burned in their desire toward one another, men with men, committing indecent acts, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. And just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, God gave them over to a depraved mind to do those things which are not proper, being filled with all unrighteousness, wickedness, greed, evil, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, malice, They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, arrogant, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, without understanding, untrustworthy, unloving, unmerciful. And although they know the ordinance of God, that those who practice such things are worthy of death, they not only do the same, but also give hearty approval to those who practice them. So ends the reading of God's word. May we be blessed as we study it together. You may be seated. One of the most beloved passages in all of scripture is 1 Corinthians 13. As I say that, many of you already know where I'm going because we describe 1 Corinthians 13 as what? The love chapter, appropriate for February and Valentine's Day coming up, right? In that chapter, Paul explains and defines love in 13 verses. In 13 verses, and sometimes in the most wonderfully poetic of ways, Paul exposes the depth and the wonder of what true love, this magnificent attribute of God, what it looks like, and even what it should look like in the lives of his people. As we find ourselves in Romans 1, we are also looking at a marvelous attribute of God. But rather than the more delightful attribute of love, which I'm sure many of you would prefer to hear, we have been considering the attribute called the wrath of God. 
let me define the wrath of God for you. The wrath of God is this. It's God's intense displeasure against any and all unrighteousness, against any and all who strive to suppress or hold down or pervert the truth of God, against any and all who exchange the truth of God for a lie so that they might worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is forever blessed. In Romans 1, 18 through 32, there are 15 verses, two more verses than what are found in 1 Corinthians 13, to, devoted to describing the reasons for and the results of the wrath of God. At this point, we need to answer some questions what is the point of Romans 1, 18 through 32? Why are these in our Bible? Why should we be spending so much time considering this attribute known as the wrath of God? Why does Paul go to such great lengths spending so much time devoting so many words to describe for us the reasons and the result of the wrath of God? Well, the simple answer is this, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And because all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, all deserve God's great displeasure. We all deserve the wrath of God. This falling short, this, this falling short of the glory of God it means missing the mark. It's, a, it's an archery term as though you are taking the bow and you're trying to hit the target, but missing the mark, you're not even getting close. You're not e hit, even hitting the bale of hay upon which the, the, the target is set. And let me remind you that missing the mark, however, is not some unfortunate accident that people are simply ignorant of making. They're not pulling a bow going, I just don't even know where to shoot. I don't have the strength to shoot that way. They are intentionally going against God's word. Prior to faith in Christ, every person stands as God's enemy. According to Colossians 1.20, each of us who now believe in Christ, Paul says, were formally, listen, alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds. That's true of every one of us in this room. Prior to Christ, we were God's enemies. In Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, a passage that we are quite familiar with, we read that each of us were dead in our trespasses and sins, in which we all formally walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, of the spirit that is now in this moment working in the sons of disobedience. Among those sons of disobedience, among all those who are alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, we too all formally lived in the lust of our flesh, indulging the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and because of that we were by nature what? Children of wrath even as all who are apart from Christ in this moment are children of wrath. That's what we were. In Romans 5, 8 through 10, we read, of course, the very familiar verse, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were, again, alienated, hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, that's when Christ died for us. 
much more than having now been justified by the blood of Christ, we shall be saved from what? The wrath of God through him. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God, not while we were neutral, not when we were somehow on the seeking side of things, while we were his enemies, it says, for while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. If that's true, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by the life of Christ. Beloved, the reason why Paul is spending so much time and effort writing about the wrath of God is because each and every one of us only deserves the wrath of God. God's extreme and intense displeasure against all ungodliness and all unrighteousness. Such is the most terrible of conditions that anyone can ever find themselves in. This is as being as bad off as we can possibly be. This is the effect of what we call total depravity. You are in every aspect of our being, our minds, our intellect, our, our emotions, our hearts, even our physical bodies are tainted by sin, saturated with ungodliness and unrighteousness. And because of that, we have earned God's wrath. Once we understand this truth, the depth and the universality of human sin, then and only then, do we really truly appreciate the gospel of God? The good news that God has provided for us the rescuer, the deliverer, the savior who brings us out of this condition. Paul conveys that delightful news as we've already looked at for the first time here in Romans chapter 1 verse 16 in the words, For I am not ashamed of the good news. I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for, and you should know this now because we've been studying it, not just for salvation. We get so used to that word, but we've added some words. We've done the amplified version, right? We want to say that it is the power of God for salvation, the power of God for deliverance. It's the power of God that rescues us from our deserved, the deserved wrath of God. Just what must be believed? What is it that's taking place here? Well, just before Paul makes that statement in verse 16, Paul had addressed all of those who believe this way. In verse 6, notice, we are the called of Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be the called of Jesus Christ? You've heard his voice, and now, because you're called, you belong to him. Gave a little devotion, very brief one, to the men's meeting yesterday in breakfast, and I gave one. Man, I did a lot of eating. I was at the men's breakfast, and I gave this devotion, and I ate with the teenagers some pizza last night, and I gave the same devotion from 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, and it says that we are not our own. We are a temple of the Spirit of God, and we are not our own, but we want to be our own. I, I know when my son was growing up and he played video games and, and I see it now with my grandson playing video games and they're trying to beat the bosses and you're not my boss. and Well, you're not your own. If you belong to Christ, you are his. Your, your mind, your intellect, your will, it all belongs to him. That's what it means to believe. I'm not my own. And sometimes, man, I, sometimes I know my flesh resists it, but ultimately I'm glad that I'm not my own. 
I'm glad my, my life and my hands and my everything I'm doing, if I just stay with Jesus, I mean, everything goes the way it's supposed to. I mean, the world may mock me, but I have joy. It's when I get out of that and I start thinking I belong to myself that I begin to see problems. So you're, you're the called of Jesus Christ, but you're not just called of Jesus Christ. Verse 7, you're the called as saints. The, you're the holy ones. You're the set apart ones. And I think about that. We use all this shorthand lingo. You're set apart. What are you set apart from? You're set apart from sin. You're set apart from those things that invite and incite the wrath of God. You are the called holy ones so that you might live for Christ. And I find that to be good news. But what is also good news is what Paul states everyone needs to be delivered from. And this is what I've been hammering now for a couple of weeks in verses 18 through 32. You need to remember you need to be saved. For if you're a believer, you have been saved from the wrath of God. And the wrath of God, as we've learned, is both a present reality. It's not just something that is coming. It is a present reality. That's what these verses are. I'm amazed. We can sit here and you can watch the news any day you want. You can read the newspaper if anybody reads the newspaper anymore. You can scan your, your apps, news apps, whatever, read all the articles, and you know what you're actually reading and probably have sometimes been slow to recognize when you're reading about politics and you're reading about what's going on in the entertainment culture and all of that, you're looking at the wrath of God. But even though the wrath of God is presently revealed, as verse 18 says, it can also be stored up. And according to Romans chapter 2, verse 5, there are those who are storing it up until the day. I don't want to be a part of the day. By way of reminder, we've already considered a number of points leading up to this text. You have the outline up there. Last week, we began fleshing out this final point, the results of God's wrath. I've reminded you that verses 24 through 32 break down in neatly into three points. And we've looked at the first one of those three points. Maybe we can get those up there. Uh, one of the ways in which God reveals his wrath against the present sin within a culture is by giving them... Maybe it will come up over to self-deception uh, where they begin to exchange the truth of God for a lie so that they might worship ultimately themselves, the creature, rather than the creator who is forever blessed. I'm going to share a little bit more about that before we delve in. Uh, these are people who deceive themselves into thinking God doesn't exist. And so God says, I'll give you over to your impurity to do those things that dishonor the body, that degrade these God-designed bodies. And uh, because people are choosing to replace God's truth for their own lies, sinners will worship and serve themselves. And so when you see narcissism, as you do when you watch some of these uh, uh, celebrities and such. What is it? Uh, th today there's going to be a spectacle of narcissism. Okay, I, I, If you want to watch a football game, that's fine, but there's a bunch of narcissists running around on the field, and some of them are bigger than others, and I don't just mean bigger because they're you know, buff or whatever. Uh, this, is, this, is, this is the wrath of God. When people get so focused on themselves, they won't focus on eternal, eternity. They won't focus on God. They won't focus on Christ. We've recognized these things. 
let me remind you that as we look at these particular verses that uh, they break down to the, the being given over to self-deception, given over to sexual deviancy, given over to sweeping degeneracy, there's a rephrase that's been repeated three times, and you can see it there in verse 24, 26, and 28. We discussed this last week. God gave them over. God's not making anybody do anything that's not already in their heart. There's this restraining grace of God. Why don't we do some of the things that we might otherwise think we would do? Because there's this restraining grace of God. But there's a point where God says to a culture, you've come so far now in rebellion against me, I'm going to remove some of that restraining grace and allow you to see where your sin will actually take you. And I mean, I'm amazed even... Just over the last 10 years, the last seven years, uh, particularly with the, the uh, passing of, uh, in 2016, of the same-sex marriage, that case with, in the Supreme Court, we see God say, okay, then you, we've opened the door, so let me just show you what's going to happen. And there were some, some of the men were saying, I remember, Pastor, you said in 2016 that when that passed, it would just be the gateway to seeing more and more perversity. And here we are. I'm not a prophet. I just read the Bible and it says that's exactly what's going to happen. And some of that we get here from Romans 1. God gives them over, not to something wonderful, not to something delightful, nothing that is soul-fulfilling. It is a giving them over to that which becomes the most shameful, the most vile, the most unnatural, the most perverse and worthless, the most degrading and ultimately the most eternally damning attitudes and actions that the human heart can ever conjure up. And you are I and I as believers are sitting on the front row getting to see it all in real time. Before us in verses 24 through 32 are the results, the present day results of those who because of their rejection of Christ as Lord because of their unbelief and disobedience to the sovereign creator God who made them, are being given over to the lust, to their own lust, to their degrading passions, to a depraved mind, so that they, because of what they want, delve deeper and deeper into the sin. And instead of seeing it as horrible, they begin to celebrate it more and more, and they give hearty approval to those who join them in it. Well, this morning we'll look in just a moment at the second phrase, use of this phrase, God gave them over, but I do have a couple of thoughts about the one we considered last week, so let me just review. God gives them over to self-deception. Verse 24, therefore God gave them over in the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them, one of the first signs of a culture that is under the judgment of God, even experiencing the wrath of God, is that that people we read are given over, that is, they're allowed to engage in sins, listen, according to verse 24, that leads to more and more impurity. That which is not pure, that which is not wholesome, that which is not holy, that which is not according to the purpose and design of the creator. Such impurity in a culture is revealed when people begin to do things with their bodies and to their bodies for which God never designed them for. 
And so while certain scriptures may allow for a time of feasting, which in the Old Testament included eating and drinking, and even in certain contexts we read in New Testament times, there was times for drinking. It is, however, sinful to be a glutton. It is sinful to be drunk. Those are impure actions. To drink to the point of being sick as so many love to do on the weekends, and they wonder why Monday is so miserable because all they've done is poison themselves all weekend, whether it's with alcohol or drugs or whatever it might be that they're doing to their bodies, using drugs to get high or to numb their emotions and calling it recreational. That's impurity. It's a dishonoring to the body. Sexual immorality, intimate relations between men and women outside the context of the marriage bed, whether it's premarital or extramarital, is impurity. It is a dishonoring of the body God has given each and every person. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20 speaks of what is to be the believer's goal, even with reference to the use of his or her body. I made reference to this just a moment ago in the prayer, but or do you not know that your body, listen, what that is what you put in it, that's what you put on it, that's how you use it. Do you not know, Paul says to these churchgoers, that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit, who is God, dwells where? In you, if you belong to Christ whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. If you don't remember anything else I say to you today, remember this when you leave this, this, this room. You are not your own. You belong to the Spirit of God if you have believed on Jesus Christ. And Paul ends that by saying, For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your mind. Glorify God just spiritually. No, he says glorify God in your body, that everything you do, everything you say, everything you put on your body, every action you take with your body is to bring glory to God. And the point is, bringing this back to Romans 1, is that as we see a culture that embraces and celebrates such sins that dishonors these God-given bodies, we are to know that that culture is actually experiencing the wrath of God. When we see, you know, we talk about the problem with fentanyl coming in over the southern border. And it's, that's terrible. That's got to stop. I, I have no problems with that. And I'm sick that that's being moved in from a foreign nation in order to poison our people. But our people are taking the drugs that are causing the problems because they're dishonoring their bodies. They're not glorifying God with their bodies. That's the wrath of God. You're seeing the wrath of God because the drug use that allows for uh, fentanyl to come in, that's a judgment of God. These then are those who are given over to self-deception into believing the lies of a culture that wants to live as if there is no God. Such a culture is given over, Paul says in verse 24, to the lust of their hearts. And you know what that ultimately means? Let me tell you, because people... People think about idolatry as something, you know, I'm worshiping a stick or a stone. This is idolatry. Sexual immorality, Paul says, is idolatry. Uh, 
Idolatry is the worshiping of the creature. When you are thinking about yourself and what you think and what you desire, when you do what's right in your own eyes, you have become an idol worshiper. You say, but I don't have a carved stick or, or a stone that I'm worshiping. No, you don't need it because you're, you're looking at it in the mirror. Narcissism is idolatry. It is about what the creature wants, what the creature desires according to their fallen sinful nature. They exchange the truth. They replace the truth. They substitute the truth of God for the lie that they want. And they think it will bring them happiness. And that their happiness is what's paramount. You know what's paramount for every creature? To know and glorify God. If that's not what's paramount to you, you don't know God. That is to be first. And when people do what's right in their own eyes, when they strive for and exert energies to serve themselves, we can say they've been given over to idolatry, which interestingly enough is a violation of the very commandments God gave to Israel in what we call the Ten Commandments. What do we read in Exodus 20, verses 3 through 5? You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. I believe Paul had some of this in mind when he said they exchange the truth of God for a lie and worship and serve the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Those who regard, disregard God's truth are idol worshipers. Yet as bad as all of that may sound, as bad as all of that may be, the culture that continues to exchange the truth of God for a lie in order it to worship and serve themselves rather than the creator, Paul says, you ain't seen nothing yet. God's still got a little restraining grace, and he's going to let a little more of that grace be let go. And you're going to see things go even deeper so not only will that culture be given over to their own self-deception by which they worship and serve the creatures but now our second point they will be given over to sexual deviancy verses 26 and 27 verse 26 for this reason god gave them over to degrading passions Notice that Paul begins verse 26, linking it to verses 25 and 24. He says, for this reason, that is to say, because sinners, when given the opportunity, when God removes the grace to show them just how bad they can be, choose to delve deeper into sin, God says, okay, I'll let you have at it. Having been judged by seeing a culture that dishonors the bodies, yet refusing to repent, God is now justified to remove even more of that restraining grace in order that his wrath may be revealed all the more. Now, I have to put in this disclaimer. I pray that I might faithfully, yet without undue harm to our more innocent ears, explain the text before us. But let me remind you that what we have before us is the word of God. This means that what is spoken here in this text is given to us by the Holy Spirit, and it is intended to educate, it is intended to warn us, it's intended to correct us, and it is intended to rebuke any who may be engaged in such activities. 
And according to God's text here in Romans 1, a culture that does not honor God, a culture that refuses to give thanks to God, is given over to impurity, which leads them to dishonoring of their bodies. And because of that, because they prefer, prefer impurity and idolatry over acknowledging God, they will be given over, look at verse 26 now, to degrading passions. Well, what are degrading passions? Paul is about to further define this in a moment, but let me just tell you that the word passions, it is the word pathos in the Greek, pathos. And it means in the New Testament, it always speaks of what one suffers or negatively experiences. What one suffers or negatively experiences. We get our word pathogen. You heard that word? In these days, we get our word pathogen, which is what? A disease-producing agent that causes suffering or sickness. It comes from this word pathos. God gives people over to pathos, to this suffering because of their sin choices. They're choosing to go into this pathos. But it's not simply a lust or desire that leads to their suffering. These are a degrading passion. Notice it's degrading passions. And the word degrading speaks of that which is most vile, that which is disgraceful, without grace, that which is shameful. And what Paul has in view and will be made clear in the context is that the culture that begins to embrace what is impure, verses 24 and 25, will be given over not simply to sexual immorality, but something. Did you know there's something worse than sexual immorality? I'm going to have to explain this in a moment. What's worse than sexual immorality? Sexual deviancy. And while all sexual deviancy is sexual immorality, not all sexual immorality is sexual deviancy. We'll explain this here in just a moment. Our text tells us that there are two sins that are indications that God's wrath and judgment are on a people. The sins that constitute a sexual deviancy, a using of sex outside the natural and God-given parameters. So, We'll explain this in a moment, but the two sins that Paul mentioned, and by the way, while these words are not found in the Greek text, that doesn't mean that it's not found in the Word of God. The Greeks just use different terminology, but what is before us are the sins of what we call lesbianism, that is same-sex attraction and intimacy between two women, and homosexuality, same-sex attraction and intimacy between two men. Paul says when these sins become increasingly prevalent, accepted and celebrated, you can know for certain that that culture is experiencing the wrath of God. What are you seeing today? The wrath of God. Now notice that Paul defines for us what are degrading passions, or he gives us, I guess we should better say, examples, and he goes on by describing what we refer today as lesbianism he says women who exchange that means to replace or substitute same word as exchanging the truth of God for a lie they exchange or replace he says the natural function for that which is what unnatural that which is the natural use for that which is unnatural 
Paul is speaking of sexual intimacy between two women. And this is clear as Paul will expound on this in verse 27. But for now, Paul indicates that a culture that is under the wrath of God is revealed when women are replacing that which is natural. And what is natural? Their compatibility with men for that which is unnatural, which literally reads in the Greek, against nature. That is women with women. So that's a sexual deviancy. And Paul says such deviancy is unnatural. Let me remind you that we define sexual immorality generally this way, as two or more people engaging in sexual activities outside the marriage bed. That is sexually immoral. However, stay with me on this. When a man and a woman engage in sexual intimacy outside of marriage, while it is sexually immoral, it is not unnatural. God created men and women to be compatible. It is a sin because God says it should only take place in the confines of the marriage bed. But it is a natural phenomenon. It's not unnatural. It doesn't go against nature. It doesn't go against biology. Again, it is wrong because God says it is wrong. It's not God's purpose as we read in his word. It's not his intent. But men and women were created to be sexually compatible by nature and by biology. Nothing unnatural for a man to be with a woman. It may be sinful if not practiced according to God's word. It is not unnatural. So now Paul comes and he says here something really mind-blowing because he says that women, here in this text, females, and notice in verse 27 he says, and in the same way the men, so this is true of both men and women, that they exchange what is natural for that which is unnatural. When they do that, they are not only going against God's word, but they are also going against nature and biology. Same-sex relationships are not only acts of rebellion against God, they also make no sense naturally or biologically. It is not for that which God designed the, the, them for physical, uh, physically, emotionally, or even spiritually. Such a relationship those are driven purely by the creature's desire rather than a desire to live a life that both pleases God and is in the creature's own best interest. Before looking at verse 27, let me uh, point out something else that Paul mentions, the sexual deviancy of women before he addresses the sexual deviancy of men. And I had to ask myself, why? Why does he mention the women first and then come to the men? Beloved, Generally speaking, the last line of defense before a culture falls completely into immorality and completely into sexual deviancy are the women. Once the women of a culture begin to embrace and practice these things, then you know for certain that that culture is experiencing the wrath of God. And what do we see? Such an increase in women participating in things that I'm not, I don't know, I'm going to try to put a date on. 25 years ago, that's not where they were at. There were some, but it's just blowing up. It's expanding even before our eyes. 
Men with their propensity to crave power, men with their love of violence, men with generally the first to initiate and engage the culture with that which is contrary to the word of God, that can sometimes be stayed, the, the, the penalties of all of that may be stayed for a time by the resistance of the women. But once the women have fallen, the culture has fallen. And so what do we see before our eyes? We see a fallen culture, a fallen culture. By mentioning the women as being against nature and against biology, Paul is communicating just how bad off that culture has become and just how much they are experiencing the wrath of God. Well, in verse 27, Paul moves us out of the realm of lesbianism and into the realm of what we would call homosexuality, of sexual intimacy between men. Again, Paul tells us that the men, it says, in the same way, in what same way? As the same way as women who have exchanged, replaced, substituted the natural function, the compatibility of the women. But Paul adds a different word, an additional word. He says they've exchanged, they've, they've given up on that compatibility there, but they've also, notice the verb, they've also abandoned. They've abandoned this. They've not only exchanged the natural for the unnatural, they have abandoned the natural for the unnatural. The word abandoned means to forsake, to utterly forsake. It can mean to put off or to send away. It can mean to leave behind. It's at the root of what it means to divorce. You put away your spouse. You put away your wife, as it may be. This is a turning of one's back on the truth, and the truth here that Paul is making mention of is the truth that God made men to be compatible with women, not other men. As Ken Ham is so fond of saying, God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. But not only do the men exchange and abandon the natural for the unnatural, but Paul also tells us that such fallen creatures, fall, such a fallen culture, that the men, he adds this, that they burned in their desire towards one another. The language that Paul is using is intense. It is inflammatory, literally inflammatory. The verb burned means to be passionately inflamed. You're like, well, what does that mean? Well, some of us probably have had a taste of being passionately inflamed before. It speaks of wanting something so badly that nothing else matters. It just clouds your mind to anything else. We see it in our children sometimes, right? Your, your little son wants those, uh, those green army men so bad that they, they have a fit, and there's nothing else. You can't hardly reason with them. Culture that's falling. I see laughter up here. Did, did that just happen? Thomas. Okay. Know what to get Thomas for his birthday, Green Army Men. Okay. He's like, thank you, Pastor. We'll have a talk later. I'll be barraged by little Green Army Men. The idea of wanting something so badly, of being so consumed by such lust that, that anything that stands in the way will be met with your fiercest anger, will be met with every attempt to tear that down. Does that sound familiar? Are we not seeing this in our culture? That Paul is speaking of sexual deviancy is made clear when he goes on to say, men with men. The Greek is a little more graphic, and I'm just going to say what the Greek is, and I'm going to say that's enough, because the Greek literally reads males into males. Enough said. But that's what it says. That's sexual deviancy 
is then described by Paul as this. It's committing indecent acts. Now, I got to this stage in my study, and I'm scratching my head because I can hardly believe that I have to say what I'm about to say. But it is almost as if Paul has run out of ways to describe just how bad this is. He keeps using these different words that ultimately all mean the same thing because he just doesn't have the vocabulary to communicate how horrific, how, how abhorrent these things are, just how vile it is for men to be so consumed, not with what's natural, but what with that is unnatural against nature. These are shameful Indecent means shameful. They're repugnant acts. They, they stand against everything of who God is. They stand against every characteristic of, of God himself and we who are created in God's image. And what does the world call it? That which God says, I don't have enough words, it's dishonoring, it's disgraceful, it's shameful, it's vile, it's a, an abomination. All of these words, the scriptures come to tell us how bad this is, and the world says, it's love. Talk about stupidity. The, what the world calls love, the word of God calls the wrath of God against the most vile of unrighteousness. Males into males and females into females is not love. It is hate. Not just the hating of God. It's a hating of humanity. It's not natural. It is not good. It is wrong. It is not healthy. It is unhealthy. It is not holy. It is unholy. And to engage in such behavior according to Paul, is an indication that you're under the wrath of God. The acts of lesbianism and homosexuality are not to be regarded as alternative lifestyles. They are anti-God, anti-human lifestyles. And they are not engaged in by anything but one's own choice and moves them further and further away from God. Paul ends this giving over section with the words, and receiving in their own persons the due penalty of their error. Well, what does that mean? There's some debate as to what Paul had in mind here. Some say that all the shame, all the hurt, all the confusion caused by engaging in same-sex relationships, well, that's the due penalty of their error. It's interesting to do a little research on this. There is a higher rate of depression and suicide among the LGBTQ community. In fact, studies in 2023, so just last year, studies in 2023 tell us that 41% of youth who identify as LGBTQ had seriously considered suicide. I read another report, and I had to kind of dig into this because it said that of all teenagers, all teenagers in 2023, the, the suicide rate has gone up, and some of that's been blamed on the pandemic and all of that. But interesting to note that of all teenagers, that would include uh, LGBTQ teenagers and non-LGBTQ teenagers in the year 2023, 20% had seriously considered suicide. 
But again, that 20% includes those who identify as LGBTQ, meaning that if you took out those teenagers who identify with that sinful lifestyle, the suicide rate of those kids, of uh, non-LGBTQ kids, would be much lower, maybe around 7, 8, 9%. The point is that participation in a gay or lesbian lifestyle puts a person at a greater risk of depression and of suicide. Yet somehow, it's supposed to be good. Somehow, it is the greatest expression of love. Before someone objects to say that such thoughts of suicide are because of us mean-spirited, closed-minded folks who reject such people. We don't reject them. We call them in love to repent and be saved by the gospel of Christ. But let me remind you that that study was done just last year. And one thing I'll tell you about 2023, and I'm sure it's just going to get more and more like this, 2023 was one of the most tolerant years for the LGBTQ community there has ever been. It's accepted now. There's not people that are shaming those who are in those cultures. And yet the thought of suicide as well as committing it are still on the increase. Is that the due penalty for their error? I think it's probably part of it. Others suggest that Paul might have in mind the potential health hazards that are associated with such a lifestyle, that those who participate in same-sex relationships are at generally higher risk of contracting sexually transmitted diseases, syphilis, HIV, other sicknesses. Still others say that the due penalty of their error is the actual participation, that it's God actually allowing them to participate in that lifestyle, that that, that is the due penalty of their error. Ultimately, as I was going through all of that, whatever we might want to add to the list, what I see Paul doing here is trying to communicate this. There is always a penalty for sin. There's always a consequence, and I don't just mean an eternal consequence. There can be a present consequence for sin. It may be immediate, it may take some time to come to fruition, but sin will always have its consequences. And sometimes consequences like you can never imagine. When I was in Bible college, way back in the day, in San Diego, there was a young man that I met who I truly liked. He was, and everybody liked him. He was such a unique character, and he had been saved, I think, just for a matter of a few months, six months, and his life was radically conformed to Jesus Christ. He believed on the Lord Jesus Christ. He loved the Lord Jesus Christ. He was saved out of the gay community. He was part of that uh, community. He had given his life over the Christ. He was a fellow Bible uh, student with me in some of my classes, and you just thought, what a story to tell this man so wondrously converted wanted to get his bible degree wanted to start a ministry to minister and, and to reach those who are trapped in that kind of culture about a semester into the uh, year uh, he had to leave classes because he was getting woefully sick a few weeks later we learned that he had hiv and by the end of the year he was dead Beloved, you can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences. 
And while some may question God as to why he allowed this young man who was so radically changed and so committed to Christ to die due to something he had done prior to Christ, well, the axiom is still the same. You can choose your sin, but you cannot choose the consequences. For reasons known only to our good and sovereign God, God determined to remove this young man, but I give praise to God that he still saved him out of that community, and he is rejoicing in heaven because of his faith in Christ. When we see a culture embrace and celebrate lesbianism and homosexuality, we are to understand it not as progress, not as some good evolution, not as an understanding of the meaning of love, when you see those things, you need to begin. I'm trying to plant this seed. This is the wrath of God. This is why we eagerly await a Savior from heaven to rescue us from the wrath that is still to come. Every June, with its title of Pride Month, which my wife hates because her birthday's in June. With all of its parades that flaunt the sexual, not just sexual immorality, but the sexual deviancy of homosexuality, is, it is on display. If you see it on the news, you need to think, that's the wrath of God. But it's even more pervasive than that. I'm sorry, I'm going to tell you something about myself that you probably say, well, I, don't need, I didn't even want to even know that, but uh, here we go. Our household enjoys watching Wheel of Fortune. There's just something about trying to figure out that phrase, that puzzle, before those on the TV that just, well, it's satisfying when you get it before them. We've been watching Wheel of Fortune for years. And I've observed something that really bothers me. My family will tell you because every time it happens, I'm saying something, which I think is the whole point. Of the three contestants per show, there is a disproportionate number of people who identify themselves as homosexual. Now, they don't say, hey, I'm homosexual. They do something like this. Hi, I'm Adam, and I'm married to my wonderful husband, Steve. Or I'm Kathy, and I'm married to my – sorry, I shouldn't have used Kathy. Okay. Uh, I'm Kelly, and I'm married to my wonderful uh, wife, Susan. And I, almost inevitably, I'll say, you're not married. It's a lie. You've exchanged the truth of God for a lie. That's not a marriage. It's not what God's word defines as marriage. It's not what history has defined as marriage. So that bothers me. But secondly, the disproportionate number of, the, of sexually deviant couples on that show is seemingly intentional. Why? Because it's meant to desensitize the rest of us, to gaslight us into thinking, well, wow, I mean, a third of the country is this way. I promise you a third of the country is not this way. At least not yet. Maybe getting there. But it's not just Wheel of Fortune, folks. Almost every show that I might see, almost every movie, and I'm not saying every single one, but more often than not these days, there's this seeking to normalize such sinful behavior so that people will simply become used to it, accept it, and eventually go along with it, then perhaps encourage it and give hearty approval to those who practice it. 
But what does God's word say? Isaiah 5.20. Woe, cursed, wrath be to those who call evil good and good evil. Who substitute, that is, exchange darkness for light and light for darkness. When I see that, I'm reminded on a show like Wheel of Fortune, which originally seemed like a pretty wholesome show. It's still generally wholesome in everything else except this, that they're actually saying this is good. Let me wrap this up by making some observations that flow out of this text, and I have four to share. First, when it comes to the topic of lesbianism and homosexuality, believers must take God at his word and know that such sins are an abomination to the Lord. It does not matter what the culture at large is telling us. They're not God. They're not authoritative. It does not matter if the narrative that is given to us is constantly to the contrary. I remind you again, this is not an alternative lifestyle. It is an anti-God lifestyle. And the God of the Bible strictly forbids anyone from practicing such things. It does not matter if the individual claims. I heard somebody say who's, who claims to be a Christian and their son is, is gay and claims to be a Christian that it's okay because it's a loving, monogamous, committed relationship with someone of the same sex. Beloved, if it's contrary to the word of God, then it is anti-God. And if you're claiming to be a Christian and doing things that are anti-God, well, that's a problem. We read in Leviticus 18.22, it says, You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. And then he calls it, what? An abomination. It doesn't matter if it's a, a man with one man and one man only. It is an abomination, something disgusting, that which is to be abhorred, that which is, well, unnatural, according to God's economy. In Leviticus 20.13, if there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood guiltiness is upon them. In the Old Testament times, these acts were met with the death penalty. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, we'll come back to this verse in a moment too, but it says, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, I want to be fair here. This, there's a lot of sins in this verse, right? But it says if these are the characteristics of your life, if this is what you're aiming for, if this is what you're known for, then guess what? You're unrighteous and you're not going to heaven. Do not be deceived, he says, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, uh, idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, generally regarded as the receivers in the relationship, or nor homosexuals, the ones who are the givers in the relationship. They will inherit the kingdom of God. While there are other sins that are in here, and they are just as condemnatory as all the others, my point is these are definitely in the list. People say, we're only picking on homosexuality. No, we're not. Anybody who has been in this ministry for any time know that we'll call out all the sins. But when a culture is celebrating sin, that's a problem. And we will not celebrate the sins that the culture seems to be embracing. The Bible calls them shameful. They're vile, dishonoring, degrading, indecent acts. The second observation is this. 
The sins of lesbianism and homosexuality are, as these verses indicate, the direct result of a person denying and disobeying God. To put it another way, when people continue in sin and unbelief as a pattern of life, God gives them over to even deeper forms of depravity, which is already in their hearts and will result in the practice of such sins. Now, I want to make this comment. If you look back at verse 26 for a moment, it says that the women exchange, and in the same way, the men exchange the natural function for the unnatural. This is what God's word says. No one is born gay. This is a willful choice. Paul says the women and the men willfully replace. They know this is wrong. They take the truth of God and they exchange it for this particular lie. They exchange this truth and they do it willfully. Now, let me say this. All are born sinners. And here's the deceitfulness of sin, the sinfulness of sin. It will seize any opportunity it can to get you to engage in whatever sin will bring you down. And when the culture begins to embrace homosexuality, you're going to see an increase of people who are engaging in those things because sin seizing the opportunity, not because somebody's born this way, but because it's easier to get them into something that people are already saying, hey, this is cool, this is fine. They're, they're, these are people who are already giving hearty approval to those who practice these things. That's Romans 1.32. And if you're living in a culture that says, hey, it's okay, then it's easier for you to go along and sin. But it's not because they're born that way. All are born sinners. Not, all, not, all, not anyone is born gay. Nobody's born a murderer. Nobody's born a thief. Those are chosen behaviors. Third observation. As gross or vile or debased as we may think the sins of homosexuality and lesbianism are, they must not be viewed as the most wicked of all sins in the world. All sins if that is what is in your heart, will condemn you to hell. doesn't matter what it is. What we find is that these sins are simply among many sins that people commit. And next week, we'll be looking at Paul's longest list. Paul loves lists. The longest list Paul ever makes is found in verses 28 through 31. Or 32, 31. Now, it's true that in this context, this, these sins stand at the top of the list, but they are not the only sins by which we can see that a culture is being judged and experiencing the wrath of God. Fourth, and finally, is that while many people in the world are given over to these sins, at least in the Western world, to the sins of lesbianism and homosexuality, it does not mean that there is no hope for these people. That's why we're here. We're here to proclaim the very message that will deliver people out of this kind of bondage. We have, a, by the way, a 2,000-year-old record in the Bible which tells us that there were some members of the church at Corinth 
who had lived in this particular way, and yet, because of the saving power of the gospel, they had been washed, they had been sanctified, they were justified, declared righteous in the sight of God by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in other words, while God does give up such people to their sins, you want to sin this way? I'll give you up to them. He does not give up on them in their sins. He still has provided the way of escape. He still has provided for us the Redeemer who is Christ the Lord. And so we come back to 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 through 11. You should understand these verses. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? So I need to know, am I unrighteous? Well, here's a list of things. If this characterizes your life, you, you have an issue. Do not be deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor homosexuals, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And then Paul adds this in verse 11. Such were, past tense, some of you. But you've been washed. You've been cleansed. You've been sanctified, made holy. You've been justified. You are now seen in the eyes of God as, as righteous as Jesus Christ because you believed in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And you've been indwelt by the Spirit of God. Beloved, what is the remedy for what we read in these two verses? What is the remedy to homosexuality and lesbianism? What is the, homo what is the, the remedy to sexual immorality? What's the remedy to, to drug use and lying and cheating and stealing? The gospel. Isn't that what Paul has been trying to tell us throughout this whole study? He began with it. So I'll say it again. Romans 1.16 For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation, the power of God for deliverance, the power of God to rescue you, in this case, from the sins of homosexuality and lesbianism and, and there's still other sexual deviancies that are coming down the pipe. We haven't seen the depth yet, but it's coming. But God is able, and God is willing to redeem those who will say, yes, I now see it's sin, and have mercy on me, the sinner. They call upon the name of the Lord. The gospel is the power of God for salvation to rescue us from the sins that God has given us over to if we so desire. I mean, these sins that we so desire, the sins that we come to see will damn our souls to hell if we continue. Yet these sins, according to Romans 1.16, may be forgiven if we but believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as the Savior, as the Rescuer, and in so doing so, you bow before him as Lord. And you begin to do what he's commanded. And you begin to forsake those things that he says you ought not to do. Paul sets out to remind us of the sinfulness of sin and how it invites and incites the wrath of God. Why is he doing this? So that the culture to which we now proclaim this message of bad news and good news will cry out to the Savior 
to deliver them from the wretchedness of their depravity, to be transformed by the grace of God, so that they, like us who have so believed, are no longer children of wrath, but children of God. That's the power of the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the truths of your word that speak so relevantly to the day and age in which we live. We recognize that we live in a time when we see the culture unraveling and it can be discouraging and we recognize that these are the indications that the wrath of God is upon the culture. And yet that doesn't change our mission. In fact, it enables us to go out with all the more fervency to preach the gospel to all creation knowing that the gospel is the only thing that will save, the only thing that will transform, the only thing that will deliver people out of their sin. And so, Father, may we be a people of the gospel, a people of the book, a people who love your word, a people who know your word, a people who proclaim your word, the word of truth, the word of life, the word that brings comfort, the word that brings healing, the word that will communicate the gospel that will save sinners from their sin. So to that end, we pray that we would be a people of compassion, a people of mercy, that we will be a people who pity those who are trapped in their sins, but then to be so desirous of seeing them delivered out of that, that we share with them that one remedy, the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we be so fervent, we ask in Jesus' name.